Hey, everybody. It's Glenn Thrush with Politico's Off Message Podcast. I'm going to cut right to the chase. Our guest this week is Keith Ellison, uh, the congressman from uh, Minnesota, who was, I think, until the beginning of this week, the front runner for the Democratic National Committee chairmanship. I think he's still considered a favorite, but Tom Perez, uh, uh, the Secretary of Labor, the former head of the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department, uh, jumped in really kind of at the behest of the White House and the Clinton folks, um, which is my sense. Um, but I want to talk about Ellison, who uh, is a really interesting guy. He is uh, w- one of the few Muslims uh, ever to serve in Congress, and he has to put up with the craziest questions about this. The most famous one was, I think, in 2006 when Glenn Beck asked him whether or not he was an enemy of the United States, which is just freaking hilarious. I mean, it's hilarious in retrospect for him, man. I don't know how you didn't just get up and throw the, you know, throw the microphone down. Um, but Ellison is a guy who's roughly my age, and something happened you know when i was talking with him where he was just kind of talking about growing up and how it is that he uh, behaved in school and i have to say i've never had an experience cuz we interview a lot of people who a lot of harvard uh, pass through this podcast a lot of yale passes through this podcast a lot of people who like who were the best students in their schools i i guess you probably uh, figured this out by now i was not the best uh, student in college. In fact, I was. Uh, I went to a school called Brandeis on a full scholarship when I was 16 and a half years old, and I was asked uh, after six months, uh, uh, very politely, if I might leave <laughs> on account of having a 1.22 grade point average. Um, uh, and uh, But I was somebody who always uh, spent my time buying books, going to use bookstores, reading, uh, learning how to play instruments, and just kind of picking things up on my own. Um, which actually works really well for my chosen profession. Uh, didn't for a lot of years, but, you know, does now. Uh, and in talking with Ellison, uh, he talked pretty frankly about that, too, about he sort of finding his way, the fact that he said something during our interview. And again, it has nothing to do with the news, particularly. I just find it kind of cool and interesting. Uh, just about how it was that when teachers told him to read certain books, he didn't want to read those books. He wanted to read the books that he wanted to read. And that really struck with me. I think that probably is a chord uh, that strikes with a lot of people out there, particularly now, um, uh, you know, as, as people are kind of rebelling against all these institutions. But I, I found Ellison, I had heard that he could be a little cranky, uh, particularly when you talked about uh, some of the things he didn't want to want to talk about. And he started off the interview a little bit, I think, uh, skeptical, but he really it turned out to be one of the one of the real fun ones, uh, and he's just a very engaging guy. And I think his discussion uh, about how it is that he came and this is really the remember this is the most controversial element of his uh, candidacy for the DNC is the fact that under a pseudonym in college, I think he was twenty years old. He wrote a couple of pieces saying that he believed that Farrakhan was not anti-Semitic. Uh, and broadly supportive of the head of the Nation of Islam, who, of course, is anti-Semitic. Uh, but him going through the time and place and where his head was at on that, I think, uh, was really interesting. And he didn't really back off on it. He talked about the context, what was going on in the country, what was going on in his life. So uh, I just really enjoyed this conversation. And I do appreciate the fact that Ellison, who is in the middle of a political fight, was so candid um, uh, you know, some people might find his uh, explanation on the Farrakhan stuff satisfying. Others won't. But I, I do believe it was a really sincere articulation of where he was at the time. So uh, we also touched on a bunch of other political stuff, uh, the lessons learned from the 2016 campaign, what do you think 
what he thought the uh, Clinton campaign did uh, right and wrong. And interestingly, he he uh, a lot of people are sort of questioning whether or not uh, the economic message was there. He's doing that as well. But his point is uh, the Clintons just weren't good enough at turning out the core, that it wasn't a mistake for them to go with the Obama 2008 and 2012 uh, playbook. They just weren't that good at it. That's an interesting take. Uh, anyway, our usual bits of business. Please follow us on iTunes and rate us. And again, we are now available on uh, Off Message is now available on almost every platform conceivable, including Spotify, which is how I listen to it. And without any further ado, here's Congressman Keith Ellison. So, Congressman Ellison, thanks for doing this. I'd like to start by asking you, um, can you prove to me that you're not one of the nation's enemies? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll never forget that interview. It was, it struck me as funny. When so Glenn this is what we're, ta- what we're talking about, of course, is the 2006 interview from Glenn Beck before his conversion to whatever the hell he's converted to now, uh, where he was talking about you being a Muslim and you had to prove that you were not an enemy of the United States, right? Right, right. Well, it struck me as humorous. That was my first uh, emotional reaction to that question. And I think it's because I had just answered so many questions, you know, 85, 90 interviews about this very same subject, you know, you know, some version of, you know, are you, you know, a, a problem and are Muslims a problem? Is you being a Muslim a problem? And and I just got used to just helping people understand that, uh, you know, that people are people the world over pretty much the same some might pray on Sunday, some pray on Friday afternoon, some pray on Friday night. Right. But people just tend to be people. And the truth is, is that, uh, you know, if the if if Muslims who are terrorists uh, kill any one group of people the most, it's other Muslims, you know. And so uh, that is, you know, I just sort of like went right through it. But I just need to help him understand that, you know, I don't have to prove my patriotic stripes. I mean, I serve this country. My son's in the active duty army. So whatever, man. And they've been, well, yeah, yeah. And I mean, this has been, well, well how do you have that kind of level of patience? I mean, because um, this seems to me to be a 1952 sort of discussion in terms of a gateway. Doesn't it piss you off at all? It does get me frustrated sometimes, but the truth is that, you know, there's such a flood and an active effort to scare the American public about all kinds of things, Muslims, Mexicans, you name it. You know, we are in this, uh, you know, this this wave where people will try to motivate some group of Americans to hate and fear another group. And they're organized and, and they do it every day. So, I mean, we just saw a presidential campaign where that that happened uh, from the moment Donald Trump announced uh, and even, even a little bit before right on until, I don't know, now. You know, uh, it's it's been somewhat of a disturbing trend. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the reasons that I want to run for DNC chair is to sort of dissuade Americans from, you know, fear, tribalism, fear the other, and try to really reestablish some sense of solidarity between people. Right. Uh, and that's what's really important to me. Well, let's circle back to that and talk a little bit about uh, who you are and where you're from. Uh, you were born, tell, tell folks where you were born, uh, what your, what your parents did. You tell you, you, the funny, the, the salient detail and, and you need to defend yourself on this, mm-hmm. um, is apparently, aren't a lot of your siblings lawyers? Yeah. 
That is one of my downfalls. <laughs> now, my oldest brother, Leonard, is a physician. My brother, Brian, is a preacher, a Baptist minister, and a lawyer. And then uh, all the bottom three of us are lawyers. So, lawyers. And, that's, and, and uh, my baby brother, Eric, is uh, actually has a real estate business. So he's kind of a businessman lawyer. But me and Tony are, well, I guess I'm a politician now, but Tony's the only one who just does law all the time, and that's all he does. Well, um, what did your folks do, and where did you grow up? Oh, I, uh, I was born inside the city of Detroit, grew up there. and uh, What neighborhood? Uh, grew up seven mile, Livernois area, west side of Detroit. And my dad uh, was a psychiatrist, and my mom was a social worker. And they're both an uh, MSW. Yep. What kind of what kind of uh, well, first of all, what kind of practice did your dad have? Uh, he, you know, just a lot of folks who were working in uh, factory people, you know, folks who just were work a day, people dealing with everything from substance abuse to schizophrenia, depression, you name it, the whole gambit of problems that people have. And he had an office practice which was pretty uh, active, and all me and my brothers worked there at one point or another. And uh, my mom. Uh, she uh, is a uh, she does yes she she does juvenile um, stuff with the Wayne County now. Oh wow! And so she's so my mom's seventy eight. She still works every day. And when we ask her when she's going to retire, she asks us when we're going to retire because she likes what she does. What is she? Uh, so is it through the juvenile justice system? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what kind of what kind of kids is she working with, or was she working? Well, with she's done it the whole gambit. I mean, at one point she did juvenile sex offenders. For real. Yeah. Kids who did something bad enough to get the attention of the court, right. but not Bad truly, enough to be, incar- to but, be right. incarcerated as an adult. And, right. Right, right. But not truly predatory and dangerous right. and right. violent, but, but, but serious. Yep. And she, you, would, you could go into her group, and then you'd get therapy, and if you made it through her group, there was a chance that you could avoid it in adjudication. Um, but you would be sent to her her group, and she would report back to the court on how these kids were doing. And uh, so she's been her life trying to you know help kids who had a lot of problems, who come from families that have a lot of problems, and she's still doing that kind of stuff every day. Now, uh, not to generalize, but my understanding, uh, you know, my first job uh, in journalism was in Birmingham, Alabama, mm-hmm. and. It is my general sense, and it may not work this way, aren't a, a lot of African-Americans who in Detroit come from sort of Alabama? Where Alabama, you, Mississippi. Mississippi. My family comes from Louisiana. My mother comes directly from Louisiana. Wow. She was born and raised there. Where? A place called Natchitoches Parish, Louisiana, on Cane River. Sure. Yep. And she went to Xavier, to college, New Orleans. My brother went to Southern. My grandfather went to Southern. Her father and uh, and my dad is uh, born in Detroit, but his dad's born in Burke County, Georgia, which is in a little city called Sardis, Georgia, which is on the uh, so like the Savannah, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, like the the it's on the between South Carolina and and Georgia, right on near the border. And they both came up there. Um, two families came up there to seek opportunity, you know. There's a great book called um, The The Warmth of Other Suns. Yep. And it's a great book about African-American migration to the North. And also The Promised Land by Nick Lemon is is another one that's That's fantastic. That's another good one. The Promised Land is an awesome book. And those are two great books, and I would commend anyone to read them. And in the, Wilkerson is Wilkerson uh, the Warmth of Other Sons? Yeah, yeah, Wilkerson's Warmth of Other Sons. But they kind of trace that line, you know. 
And but uh, my family is Louisiana and Georgia. But your people, uh, what's different about the? Uh, I don't want. We actually have to talk about politics, but this is interesting. The uh, your folks uh, slightly different experience. Uh, you, you have several generations of education. Yep. Uh, on your, uh, you said your mom's side, right? My mom's side. What my, about you? my grandfather, my father's father. Um, you know, uh, I learned quite accidentally that he probably couldn't read. Because he uh, was a pretty clever guy, yeah. smartest person I ever met. And he would uh, have my brother Brian and I cut grass on some uh, apartment buildings he had managed to acquire. He was a factory worker, uh, and I mean, he saved up his pennies, and he bought some, some rental property. Yep. And he'd have my brothers and I cut the grass. And he would always ask us to write out the receipts to the tenants. Yeah. And one day I asked my mom, you know, why Grandpa does that, and she reacted like, don't you shame your grandfather? You know, mm-hmm. I'm like, we're not. I didn't. What do you mean? And she's like, you know, where your grandpa comes from, they just didn't let people like him go to school. You know, he had to be in the fields when he was your age. Hmm. So, you know, and I said, well, sheesh. I mean, it really kind of blew my mind. Well, that's funny. We had uh, Jeff Sessions on the podcast, and he grew up in a rural community outside in the black belt somewhere i think Mm -hmm. outside of uh, montgomery and he was talking about uh going to school every day and on the same one lane highway the broken down bus with the african-american students be coming in one direction and he'd be going in the other that's a metaphor if you ever heard one huh yeah man (laughs) well that's that was life you know i mean um you know just schooling for black kids in rural georgia in in 19 you know, 10, 1911, 1912, they just, it just either didn't exist or it was so spotty it might as well not exist. So this, so in terms of the multi-generational education, let me tell you something, you know, my family, you know, I'm, I, I am the first, uh, uh, first person in several generations to have a college degree in my family. Hmm. Uh, so in terms of explaining yourself to people, it sounds to me like that probably shaped your experience in terms of explaining your Muslim faith to people being a, a multi-generationally educated African-American in the North, people probably didn't didn't make that assumption about you when you'd walk into a room, right? Oh, no. The, the general assumption was that you, you came from a broken home, you had more siblings than you could count, and that you probably were um, angry and, I mean, just the whole nine stereotype. And and so, you know, but but we're talking about my background, but all of this does shape you know, your political view, yep. right? Because I I think that for a lot of people who are sort of rated lower than they ought to be, yeah. you know, there can be a certain resentment that accompanies that, if you understand what I'm saying. Oh, I think I do. Yeah, and, and it's like, well, we don't expect much out of you, so, you know, uh, but I'm like, well, wait a minute, why wouldn't you expect something out of me? I mean, I my parents do, <laughs> you know, my family does. Uh, and, um, you know, these are people who were really proud and who put up with buckets of crazy and somehow, despite it all, got their hands on some degrees. You know, there's this thing in, in, in Natchitoches, Louisiana, used to be this, um, this statue of mm-hmm. Uncle Jack. And you can look up a picture of Uncle Jack right now. And Uncle Jack was a black man tipping his hat. And on the bottom of it was a placard which read... To the faithful darkies of Natchitoches, Louisiana, for their faithful and arduous service. And my mother walked by this thing every, every day. single day to go to school. And, um, you know, um, so in the face of her mother 
in the face of her being told that she should be a subservient person and not aspire to much, she was at home being told, you study because this is the only way you're going to ever get any respect in this in this world we live in. And so um, these are the people who raised me, right? This well, I remember, my- you know, one of the, my first encounters in reading about this, uh, apart from reading Malcolm's autobiography, was uh, Charles Mingus, of all people, had yeah. a, uh, an autobiography called Beneath the Underdog, <laughs> which was... I think summed up a lot of those things. And he came from a family that was uh, not uneducated. It's a, it's a subtle form. It is a much more subtle form of prejudice. Yeah. Right? So, you know, is from an African-American standpoint, you're kind of told, well, if you dress better, you'd get more respect. If you spoke standard English, you'd get more respect. If you were educated, you'd get more respect. And your problems are because you don't do all these things that you should do. But if you did do, you'd get some respect. But then still... You know, the black doctor gets pulled out of the car, called a boy and thrown up against, you know, I mean, the whole, you know, and then you're like, okay, so is there something going on other here, uh, here other than, you know, me being not respectable enough, right? right. (laughs) you know, and the answer obviously is yes. But, you know, um, I tell you, my parents uh, also worked hard to make us um, understand that, um, you know that that the world really was full of good people of all backgrounds, and you know they really in, they really taught us that they showed us that we knew that growing up, uh, and uh, but we also knew that um, you had to work harder. So yeah, in terms of in terms of uh, working harder, I guess one of the um, oh actually before I get off that, uh, so you were raised Roman Catholic, yes, and I don't want to do all this identity stuff, but yeah, but it's part of your story. Tell me, uh, you converted in college, right? Tell yeah, me, what, I did. Most kids, when they go away to college, tend to get less spiritual. <laughs> so, like, because other things intervene. Right. Uh, tell me what, what that was like. Well, you know, I always had, like, a spiritual yearning, you know, and I went to all-boys Catholic high school in Detroit, and they taught us, you know, a motto, men for others. It was a Jesuit school, you know, and it was a good school. They taught us how to read and write, and they... And and you know, look, it's not their fault that I didn't that I became a Muslim. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't you can't blame that on the Jesuits. No, 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 no everything no. else on the Jesuits. Yeah, right? yeah, but but I will say that they did expose me to this idea that you have to live a life of service. But um, I don't think I was listening very carefully as a high school student, and uh, you know, but I did, but I did have this sort of like spiritual curiosity, you know, as I got into. College. How did that manifest itself personally? Just sort of like reading stuff and asking a lot of questions. Give me an example on the reading. Well, you know, I uh, remember um, picking up uh, a book on uh, uh, on the Bhagavad Gita. I read that, you know, and I remember picking up. I remember reading the Bible. See, because when I was in high school, we the first time I ever actually read the Bible was in a is in a high school senior seminar on the book of Mark. No kidding. And it blew my mind that it didn't even nobody claims that it was written before until like seventy years after Jesus yes. left the earthly plane. And and, and and even this Jesuit priest was telling us that it probably was written by a team of people, not yep. just one guy named Mark. Right. And you know sort of helped us understand that you know, just sort of the, the how the, the evolution of the document we now call the King James Bible. Right, right. And so I thought that was fascinating. So I gra- so I read it. I read stuff about that. I also read um, books about, uh, you know, there's a guy named James Cone who 
who who wrote about black liberation theology. Then I read about liberation theology. Nyberg. And, yep, yep, yep. And I thought this was all fascinating stuff. This is like when I'm 17, 18, 19 years old. But this is actually kind of the spiritual progression that King went through. If you look at what, what he did, at, was it Crozier? Yeah, uh, yeah. Where he, where he really almost read right up to the moment where he made his decision to become a civil rights leader, right? Yeah, so I was digging yeah. into this, and, and, I, and I read a lot. I read Malcolm X's um, autobiography, which I thought was really fascinating. And, uh, and, and so I um, ran into a friend of mine who uh, was actually a, a college student with me. We were both studying engineering. No, in, we, it was a calculus class we were taking. And, I, and he just one day on a Friday just up and said, well, I got to go. And I said, well, where, where, where are you going? He said, well, I, I got to go to, go to Juma prayer. I said, well, what's that? He says, well, the studies, you know, come on. I'll show you. So, Wait, I, what school are you at? I'm at Wayne State University. You're Wayne State University. Okay. And so we we go, and there's all these shoes out there. I say, you gotta take off your shoes. Okay. And then we go, and everybody's sitting down. And I'm like, all right. So we sit down. There's sheets spread out everywhere, and we're listening to this guy talk. And he was talking about um, how uh, Muhammad, uh, uh, peace and blessings be upon him, was. Uh, uh, his his father died before he was born and his mother died before he turned six that he um uh you know and still you know uh he uh rose up to be a worker and worked for uh and and was a commercial um employee of a woman by the name of Khadija who would end up being his wife and uh that um you know really when he began to preach in his city his hometown of Mecca he was preaching about letting captives free, releasing slaves, standing up against constituted authority that was exploitive of the people. Um, how, you know, that the people in power wanted to have this system that they profited richly from that was based on exploiting people's sense of spirituality. And he spoke against it, talked about truth, honesty, and mostly about how you should not put value and weight and importance on things that are basically rocks and stone. And uh and and so you know I thought that was fascinating and, and so I I read and so I got up left and uh I I went back the next week and went back the one week after that started reading more stuff and um uh I really liked the message of social justice and inclusion it reminded me of some things I learned when I was a uh in high school and next thing you know sometime around November um, I started going into the community to a place called the Muslim Center, which is in uh, Detroit, Michigan, on uh, Davison and uh, Santa Rosa Boulevard. And there, you know, I uh, stood up and did Shahada, and uh, which is the witness, and that makes you a Muslim. What kind, of, what kind of kid were you? I mean, like, uh, clearly you're incredibly diligent. And you're, you're really diligent in your studies, right? I mean, you know, I, I was, I could have been much more diligent. <laughs> Let me tell you, I could have been much more diligent. I like to read what I wanted to read. And I didn't really want to read. Join the club. Right. I didn't want to read what I was supposed to read. So right. I might, I mean, I might, uh, I had a, I had a, one thing that I heard over and over again in school coming up is, you know, Keith's a smart, smart boy, but he, he doesn't, he doesn't apply himself to the work assigned. <laughs> you know? You have ADD, do you? <laughs> I don't know. I've never been diagnosed. Yeah, you, you but, do. But, <laughs> I, but, but, but I tell you, so I, I, uh. I, but I like to read stuff that I thought was fascinating, but what was assigned wasn't necessarily that interesting right, to me. Right. So I, you know, so like in the math class, I'd be interested in 
you know, like how do wormholes work or what is uh, warp space time? And they're like, no, and you we're, were mathy. I like math. I think math is awesome. I'm sorry, we have to. Can we pack up and leave? <laughs> but but again, you know, but yeah. but my grades in math probably could have been better because yeah. you know they assign you to do these twelve problems. Right. And you're supposed to do them twelve problems, and I always thought to myself, what is this for? You know, what are we doing? Right. Integrals and right. derivatives. What is it? Why? What is it? What is it all about? And it's interesting, you know, that all these math concepts were derived to explain some kind of a natural phenomena. Do you play music? Yep. I have a feeling. What do you play? I'm a decent guitar player. I wouldn't say good. What kind of stuff do you play? Um, I like folk music, so I listen to, uh, you know, I listen to Cat Stevens. I listen to uh, I'm John, John, uh, John um, um, I don't know. Uh, oh, man, you got me. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. This is really, I can ask him, Paul. I was going to ask you about Farrakhan. You wouldn't get that confused. <laughs> well... <laughs> People in the press have made me get enough practice, but um, but I'll say that you know, yeah, I listen. So you have like a, what kind of? Well, I'm gonna flat out what kind of guitar? You have a good guitar? Yeah, I have a uh, I have a Taylor. You know, nice. I have a uh, I have a four one four CE Taylor. Um, I've been playing on it for twenty years. Um, finger I, picking or use a pick? Well, I do. I can do some finger picking, but I really use a pick more. You know, because the finger finger picking to me, I really there's a guy named Leo Kotke. In my I state. love Leo Kotke. He's awesome. Oh, he's crazy. And and I Bert just, Janch is another one who's like uh, Kotke. Oh sorry. yeah, yeah oh sorry. yeah, oh yeah. I think he's this is where uh, people tune out. He's fantastic. Yeah. And so I like listening to it, but um, for me to get to be able to do that, I just think it takes so much. You've either got to be very gifted, yeah, or have a lot of time. It's left. You know what it is? It's left brain, right brain talking to each other. It's yeah, the thumb, yeah. The thumb and the and the finger. So I got to ask you. You want a controversial? Uh, you tell there's a fairly famous folk rock artist, uh, singer songwriter who just won a Nobel Prize and decided not to go to Stockholm to pick up the prize. I believe his name is Bob Dylan. And he's from the state of Minnesota. Mm, well, yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, I do play some Bob Dylan. What What do you think of his decision not to go pick up his uh, Nobel Prize? Well, I got to be honest and tell you, I don't know exactly why he decided to make that, although I did hear that he decided to make that decision. Yeah. What was his reason? He doesn't give any It's Bob Dylan. He doesn't give any reason for anything. Well, you know, Bob Dylan is one of those people who creates for the sake of creating. You know, he will say, you know, the great well of, you know, creativity. Yeah. I mean, is there a more prolific songwriter ever? I mean, this guy just pours music out. And to him, you know... I just think that things like accolades just don't mean to him what they, they mean might mean people. to other people. And to him, you know, I mean, this guy's always been just churning out these tunes, you know. And I mean, think about all the songs that he's written that other people have made famous, like All Along the Watchtower. That's Jimi Hendrix. Nope, it's actually Bob Dylan. Right. Or uh, Forever Young. Or, I mean, we could just keep going. You know, the Adele song, you know, yeah. uh, Make You Feel My Love. You yep. wrote that. Yep. You know, I mean, this guy just churns it out. And, you know, he's just, to him, I think just uh, accolades just don't really, he's like, yeah, so, you know, I'm I'm here, I'm making money. I'm making music. That's what I do. And he really is a rare find because, I mean, anybody who, you know, can just produce music like that, um, there's, they got to be plugged into something very special. 
So, okay, last question on soft stuff, and then I'll get tough, but I'm fascinated. Detroit is not, if you're an African-American uh, dude in Detroit, people are not expecting you to be listening to Cat Stevens, right? Well, you know, Cat Stevens is another one of them great <laughs> songwriters, right? <laughs> no, but what is it? But, like, the, was that the musical environment, cultural environment you No, no, from? the cultural, see, like, that, see, you you're roughly, me, how old are you? I'm 53. So you're in my... Yeah, but see, you asked me what I play. Right. Now, but you, if you ask me what, what you I listen to... to I listen to Prince. I think Prince is great. I try to play Prince, but Prince is... You want to talk about a guy who can shred on a guitar. Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. You uh, saw that concert where he played, where uh, he did, the, where he did um, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Did, hey, he killed. He had a that big red crazy, hat on. Crazy, crazy. Yeah, he yeah. Is just kills on yeah. that. But I loved all the Motown. I'm a big big fan of Motown. I'm, you know, Marvin Gaye, you know, Stevie Wonder, uh, all those guys I think are the best. Um, but I also, you know, I, I I like rap. You know, I when I was a young man earlier in my life, I listened to, you know, uh, in a Public Enemy. We really. had Chuck D on. It was yeah. Can I tell you, it was my favorite podcast. Forty five minutes with Chuck D in Cleveland was just about the best. Well, yeah. you know, Chuck D is so much more than a musician rapper. You know, he's just really a profound thinker and. And so, you know, and I and I think that, uh, so I like all of that stuff. I'm also, my dad was a massive jazz fan, so I grew up on, you know, Charlie Mingus, but also uh, grew up on Ornette Coleman oh, and grew up sorry. on, uh, you know, Coltrane and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, you name it. And if they're blowing a horn, my dad was... Had it on, you Ornette know. is just amazing. All right, okay, yep. enough of this shit. <laughs> this is a good <laughs> Now I don't get to Farrakhan. No, um, so... Let's talk, rather than just ask you, the, you know, to get the road answer on this stuff, tell me kind of like, so, so you're a young man, you, you become uh, interested in this stuff. Tell me just a little bit about where your head was at when you, well, I guess, when you sort of uh, wrote those positive things about Farrakhan. If right. people don't, don't know, the thing you've taken a lot of guff on is right. you said you didn't think he was an anti-Semite. Well, let me tell you, I yeah. addressed all this in 2000, and, it was old in 2006. Right. Well, but let me just tell you where my head was at. So, like, in 1991, you had um, uh, um, Rodney King get beat right out there on videotape. Uh, you know, 50-some blows all on tape, cops standing around doing nothing. But that, but why did people get so upset after those guys were acquitted? Because it was happening all over the country. Right. You know, uh, it was happening in Minneapolis. It was happening in Detroit. It was happening. It was what was going on. Um, you know, uh, also... Uh, community violence, just private individuals killing other private individuals, rampant. You know, in 1995, Minneapolis, which is known as a pretty laid-back, cool town, got the uh, moniker Murderapolis, you know, that yep. year. And um, Detroit, you know, I remember years in Detroit growing up where th you'd have 300 homicides in Detroit, you know. And so there was unemployment was high, community violence was high, community police relations were awful, and you had people coming up in that space, speaking to that issue. And, you know, Farrakhan was one of them. And, you know, uh, I mean, I'm a t it's hard for people who are not in the experience to understand it. But there are times in your life when somebody's speaking up in a bold, brave way against circumstances that you find uh, intimidating, make you feel personally vulnerable, um, you know, that can be an attractive message. And it was to me and it was to literally millions of others, you know. Um, but the difference between me and a lot of other people is that uh, I would write about things that I thought. Right. And when the march started getting really attacked, 
I wrote back and tried to defend the march, and I thought it was important to defend the person who called the march. I came to learn that, you know, that defense wasn't wasn't deserved. You know, why? Because, well, you know, uh, you know, I just saw those guys as big on fundraising, using the platform to pander to uh, people's anger and fear without really giving them back much and scapegoating other groups, not just Jews, but, you know, you name it, gays, you name it, black preachers, other Muslims, they had a long list. So um, do you see a parallel? So, sorry, hearing you talk about this, I hear echoes in the way you talk about Trump. Yeah, well, do you, you see know, parallels between Farrakhan and Trump? I'll tell you this. They're, they're charismatic speakers speaking to people's pain, blaming other people is an old trick. <laughs> and those two guys have used it, and so have many, many others. And so, you know, it became clear to me that this wasn't going anywhere, and it wasn't the right thing, and it was demonizing people who did deserve it. And my message had to be more of inclusion. And, you know, uh, and, and so that was in the 90s. Uh, and yet, you know, when I ran for Congress, I had to deal with all this stuff. Interestingly enough, I didn't have to deal with it when I ran for state house in two thousand in two thousand and two, but in two thousand six, um, you know, I did, I had to account for things I'd written as a college student, and like you said, a lot of college students aren't writing anything; right. they, they're going to the beer party. You got it. But you know, I was trying to think my way through the world, and I expressed myself in writing. Sometimes some things I wrote were tongue in cheek when I wrote them. Yeah, but you know, uh, in two thousand sixteen, you know. Everything is fodder for the you know for the mill, right? Everything is 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 a fair game, and you know it's interesting. You know, there's a whole lot of problems going on in America right here now today. I got a ten year record of being in Congress, and some of my uh, some interviews I've had, they just don't want to talk about those things. But maybe they feel. But that is the nature of branding in politics, and I, maybe it is. Th- let, let me tell you. I mean, th- this is a, a bugaboo of mine, and you know, obviously, you have to be held accountable for your words, and I yeah, think that yeah. is an entirely legitimate thing. And you've given an explanation. But every single word, though. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, I think so. I, well, so, so like, this way so you like, and I disagree. So like, I'm fi- well, yeah. see, I'm 53 years old. Yeah. I have four kids. My youngest child's 20. Some of the things they want to hit me for, I was younger than her when I wrote them. I know. And so, come on, at some point. We are all are human beings who have evolved over right. the course of 25 right. years, and yet we want to freeze each other in time. But here's the thing. I find your explanation about it and the way that you just explain it to be more revealing about your character than if, I didn't, if you didn't have this in your past. Well, that's because you're a reasonable person. Well, you don't know but, that. Well, <laughs> you sound like and you have a reputation for being a reasonable person. But, there, but we live in a world of oppo research where people are literally trying to but tell But that's what that, I mean by branding. They want yeah. to turn that into a hashtag. And, right. And l- let me ask you, uh, uh, I won't hunker down on this too much because it's just an aspect of what you're, what you're about. And I do want to talk about kind of the economic issues because that's really w- where all this stuff's headed, right? I think so. Um, the, um, so the ADL came out. You Obviously, you've got Bernie Sanders. You've got Elizabeth Warren who's supporting you. Chuck Schumer, which is a big, big, big deal. Uh, Randy Weingarten of the American Federation of Teachers. Uh, the Anti-Defamation League, which had initially said really positive things about your statements, then sort of came out and, and I wouldn't say reversed themselves, but had sterner stuff to say. Yeah. Why do you think that's going on right now? You know, I, I don't know, uh, but I can tell you that I think that Jonathan Greenblatt is a good man. Uh, I don't have anything bad to say about him. I will say that I wish he and I would have talked before he sent that second statement out because 
what I would have explained to him is that he got a 30-second uh, clip uh, from a avowed Muslim hater, a guy named Steve Emerson. And we are talking about, let's just cl- talk about the comments that we're talking about. We're talking about right. comments in which you had said well, a well, nation of 7 million speaking about Israel. Well, what I was saying is that, yeah. you know, is that, you know, the U.S. policy toward the Middle East uh Obviously, Israel features very prominently in the U.S. policy toward the entire region. Right. And I was explaining what you know. Why does Israel play you know an a, a, based on population feature more prominently than other countries that have much more population? Right. And I said part of it is U.S. national security interests. Another part of it is just that people in America who have who are pro-Israel get out there and use their 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 constitutional rights to raise issues with their policymakers. So I, so what I said, though in artful, I don't think, uh, it certainly wasn't made in a mean-spirited way. It certainly wasn't disparaging of anyone. Uh, but it was the statement that, uh, look, it, and, and people were asking me, how can we be more effective at engaging our government? Right. You got to understand, a lot of people who, in the audience I was talking to, if you come from Syria you don't have any experience with reaching out to government and trying to get them to be responsive And we are to you. speaking on a day, we've said this for the last week, where the city of Aleppo is literally being obliterated. Right, literally being obliterated. You right. know, and, and, but if you're from Egypt, you could vote for Mubarak if you want to. It didn't matter. You know, uh, the last guy, al-Sisi, got 97% of the vote. So if you imagine yourself a 50-year-old Egyptian immigrant coming to the United States, you're trying to figure out how can I get the government to be responsive to my American community? Right. Well, who, what are the models? Are there any minority groups out there who are doing it? And so I was explaining to them, look, you know, you got folks who come to the Hill, make relationships. And for many people from that background, you know, the American pro-Israel community is a model for how to organize within the law. And on Capitol Hill and anywhere. Now, do you generally do you just articulate what your position is on Israel? Are you supportive of Israel? Do you? Of course, what, I what am. is your Israel-Palestinian peace position? Look, I am. I am supportive of Israel and a Palestinian state. I believe there must be a Palestinian state alongside the Israeli state. I believe that the United States should be an agent to try to promote a two-state solution. Uh, I don't think settlement uh, movement in the Palestinian state is helpful to the ends of. Uh, of a two-state solution. And in that, you are aligned with Secretary Kerry and the president. Yeah. The current president. Sure. Absolutely. But but my point is that, uh, but but that's that's been my position. I voted for $27 billion of bilateral aid to Israel, but I've also voted for money to UNRWA, which takes care of Palestinian refugees, and I'm proud to do that. You know, I've been to Gaza three times. I've been to Israel and Palestine seven times. I try to understand the issues. Um, well, uh, that's it. Let me uh, fa- let's talk a little bit about the DNC race. Um, though I like to talk about music, the um, so uh, one of the, the features, and you know, I don't think this is a newsflash to you. A lot of the political operatives around the first African American president were not necessarily comfortable with you running uh, for the DNC. I think uh, for reasons that were articulated to me in blunt identity politics terms, right? That they want to see somebody who can kind of bring everybody into the big tent. A, uh, why do you believe that was mistaken? And B, what do you think about the fact that the White House wasn't necessarily supportive of you? Well, um, I think I can bring everybody into the tent. In fact, if my 
political career is any indicator. You know, my district is uh, very diverse, 63 percent white, but lots of people who uh, are black, Latino, Asian, Native American, men, women, gay, straight, trans, uh, very diverse. And we um, somehow I've been winning my elections with 70 percent of the vote. Uh, what? How do I do it? I focus on things we all share, like what? An economy for working people that that, that works, um, uh, the air, the water. I mean, the first bill I ever introduced and actually got passed was a bill that banned the practice of universal default. So what is that? So if you got more than one credit card and you're late on one of them, uh, before my bill, the credit card companies could raise your interest rates on all of them because that would be an indicator that you uh, were maybe not credit worthy. That bill made it into something called the Credit Card Holders Bill of Rights, which is a larger bill sponsored by Carolyn Maloney. But that bill was my first bill. Well, that bill certainly helps everybody in the district. And I'm looking for and it certainly helps people of color. It certainly helps women. You know, it right. certainly, you know, it, it certainly helps white men. It helps. It's it's something that helps everybody. So I've been trying to push the, I mean, the next bill I got passed. I don't know if it's the next one, but one of the earlier ones was a bill well, I found out that a lot of people living as renters in multifamily dwellings um, were uh, learning about their foreclosure on the day that they were being foreclosed upon, right? Yep. And that's because there's a whole lot of law that protects owners in foreclosure, but not renters of those owners. Right. So I passed a bill called Protecting Tenants in Foreclosure and Act. And it's very much city to city. Yeah. Municipality, municipality. But, but that thing, but yep. that again goes to the very heart of trying to pass legislation that is going to have a benefit to everyone. So, so, so that's kind of what, you know, uh, the, that's kind of how I work. And I've been very clear on the fight for racial justice. I've been very clear on opposing anti-Muslim hate and anti-Semitism. Uh, one of the things that I wish people would talk about more is how I have worked interfaith on an interfaith basis across uh, different groups to try to lift up the voice and build unity among all people. So I, I really think that um, that uh, I, I, I am well suited to to bring unity to the Democratic Party. What did Hillary Clinton and her campaign get wrong? What did they misread? Well, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton had a lot of headwinds in terms of, uh, you know, whether it's the hacking, whether it's Comey, whether it's, you know, just all that stuff. But I, I would say this. Um, we we had to we I think the Democratic Party as a whole needs to focus much, much more on voter turnout. In 2014, we had a 36 percent turnout. That is the bottom end of a 70 year slide. Right. And even in this race, we had lower turnout than Obama had achieved. Uh, and and I Wayne think County was a big Wayne County reason dropped off why, big. Why, why she lost Michigan. Well, I think yeah. the problem is, you know, our whole all of our models go on going after likely voters in swing states. How do you maybe they're not swing? You know, we didn't think Michigan and Wisconsin were swing states. We thought they were firmly in our corner. Well, so that's the problem. But if you try to reach out to voters everywhere, all 50 states, all three thousand one hundred and forty one counties, then you're not going to run into that problem. But, right? but here's the issue. Okay, in the primary, one of the things that she did really successfully, Hillary, was to counter was to was to counter uh, Sanders on the larger umbrella argument of economic inequality and actually focus it on more on race. I mean, that was an interesting moment in the debate. 
and it was really advantageous to her for South Carolina and New York, where she was like, no, 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 we're not talking about Wall Street for all people. There are specific conditions that exist for African Americans and race. And that differentiation, in addition to the gun thing, really helped her. And the gun issue also played very well racially. To some, to some extent, she never pivoted back to a larger, she tried to, but the, but the message was more fragmented. I mean, but is, that is the duality we're talking about here. Well, it's a is it a false duality or it, it, it is a yeah. false duality and it's an unfortunate duality because I believe that when people are divided along their ethnic and racial and religious lines, it makes them much more easy to exploit on economic uh, grounds. And how I mean, and, and look how how does racism expressed often in American history through poverty, right? That's how people oftentimes experience that they simply don't have opportunity. And it is because of the legacy of Jim Crow slavery and all the rest. So in my opinion, it is a false split. But um, what we but but the thing is, you cannot gloss over racial issues and gender issues and just sort of say everything is economy. The problem is it's not easy to get people to listen to you long enough to help you understand how these things are connected. Well, well one of the things that in the absence of a the binary of a presidential campaign. And let's kind of get into what, uh, in our last couple of questions here, get into what a DNC chair does and what a party does, right? Right. Um, just about issues that get, you know, I remember 06 when the Democrats flipped everything in 06, they had some really good issues, stem cell referenda all, mm-hmm. over, the con- uh, all over the country. And they also muted the gun issue. Uh, let's just sort of take a couple of things. Let's talk about some of these nominations that are going to happen in the Senate. Those are going to be, I presume, those are going to be real centering moments for the party to come together. Which ones? Now, obviously, you deplore. I assume you deplore a lot. We got, of them. We, yeah, I don't. I I haven't seen any I like yet. But which ones? Let's talk really strategically. Sure. Though. I've heard some people say the real biggie to go after is Mnuchin. I think I think people are right about that. Um, the Mnuchin uh, the Mnuchin nomination is very scary given the role he has played at IndyMac and uh, West One in the whole foreclosure crisis. And, you know, it's really amazing. 2008, we have this biggest meltdown in, 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 in our economy since the Great Depression. And who do we put back in place? You know, Mnuchin. But, I, but I'm going to tell you, there's some others, too. I think that Tom Price is, uh, you know, you, you start stripping... 20 million people away from health care benefit that they that they have now, even if the premiums are higher than they want them to be, you are going to cause real pain. Because you know why people stay up at night? Because the plant's closing, because mom has cancer and we don't have no way to cover their medical expenses. These things are absolutely plaguing large numbers of American people. Large numbers of Americans all over this country wake up at night worrying about how they're going to cover these bills. And things like housing, health care and wages. These are the things that unite us. And by the way, um, you know, these nominations, you know, are which one personally gets you? I think price really bugs me because he's been the leading voice to get rid of uh, the Affordable Care Act. When the truth is, the I was there. The Republicans never offered an alternative. They fought us every step of the way. They made sure that this was not a bipartisan bill. And I think they did it for cynical reasons, which is they knew that if we had a successful Affordable Care Act, 
that it would endear the American the Democrats to the, to the American people for generations. To coin a phrase, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm, mi- I'm mixing up historical er- eras here, but do you think a massive resistance approach some Democrats have kind of uh, advocated in the Mitch McConnell vein in 09 is the way to go? Or do you think working with Trump on things like infrastructure is a way to go? I wouldn't pick either one of those. I would say this. We examine everything, and if it is actually good, right, and fair to the American people, we're not going to stand in the way of working with anyone to help the American people. But if they are, if they don't pass that test, we need to be absolutely all against it, 100%, and we need to use our First Amendment, our freedom of, to protest, and we need to you know, push back in Congress, and we need to use the legal system to push back. So my, my point is slightly different. It's not let's work with them because the, the thing that worries me about that is that they'll re, he's already rolled out this uh, infrastructure bill, which is basically nothing but a bunch of big tax giveaways to some people who are already going to do certain projects anyway. And, 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 and this, is, this is not a good bill. This infrastructure bill he's proposing is bad. So in the spirit of bipartisanship, we sign up with that. Then he passes this bill, brags about it. It's bipartisan. And now he's popular for a time, but we are culpable because we helped it happen. So I think that we should, if there, if he comes up with a good idea, and we should we should not stand in the way of something of good things for the American people. But if he doesn't, we ought to call it out, expose it, and fight it every every step of the way. Last two questions: the um, uh, a lot of people have, have labeled you various things, right, in yep. a negative way on the on the right. Sure, give me a description of Donald Trump. How would you describe Donald Trump? to a space alien landing here and discovering that he's the president-elect? I'd say he's a remarkably smart marketer. I'd say he, he, was, he was, uh, had a tremendous profile that he gained in, in reality TV on The Apprentice. And I'd say that, um, you know, he's a billionaire who got, well, maybe, I don't know if he is or not. We don't, nobody really knows because of the tax situation. But the, he was able to um, parlay his, uh, his, um, celebrity into uh, political, uh, into the highest office in the land. Never happened before. I don't think anybody ought to discount Donald Trump or dismiss him. In fact, in 2015, July 2015, I said people need to be concerned about whether or not Donald Trump might end up the nominee. And I said it on on the Stephanopoulos show. And so, you know, uh, that's how I would describe him. I, I think he is probably... Um, narcissistic, you know, and I mean clinically, and 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 I think he probably is um, a person who's probably going to end up getting bored with the presidency. That's interesting, you know, because I think that you know he's the kind of guy who's always looking for one, you know, something else to glorify himself. And do you, do you think he's a? We asked Sharpton this question, not that you know that that's a parallel, but I mean, Sharpton said to us, this is six months ago. That he didn't think Trump was really a racist; that he just kind of played around with that stuff. Oh, I think that could well be. I mean, but when you, but see, here's the thing: there's 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 racist, there's racially insensitive, and then there's people who are anti-racist. I mean, there's a range. Right. And I think that he is the kind of person who is not above manipulating race in order to his gain something that he wants. So that that. That's pretty bad, in my opinion. <laughs> That's actually kind of low down and not admirable at all. But is it in his heart that he just is, uh, you know, just, you know, too much melanin just creeps him out or something? I don't think 
I don't I'm, I would I would be happy to believe that that's probably true. But uh, at the same time, uh, so what? Because if the power that he that he has derives from people who do hold racist views, he's going to be all in with them. Final question. Uh, Tom Perez uh, is apparently going to announce uh, Tom Perez, the labor secretary. Yeah. Pretty well respected guy. Civil rights division and justice. Um, a couple of other uh, Ray Buckley from uh, New Hampshire, uh, fellow from South Carolina, Jamie Harrison. J- Jamie Harrison, tell me what you uh, tell me what your opinion of, of uh, Perez is, um, and why you think you're more. I assume Perez is, is entering this would be the second uh, uh, second challenger. Tell me, game this out for me, and tell me why you are superior in your own opinion. Why you're well? Superior. First of all, they're all friends, and I like them all personally. And they're the kind of people who I uh, personally have affection for. Uh, I think I'm the best choice for DNC chair because um, the one thing that we must do is turn out the vote. And the one thing that I have done uniquely in that group is turn out the vote. So when I first got into Congress, I had the lowest turnout district in the state of Minnesota. Now I have the highest and consistently have the highest. And as a matter of fact, because we turn out the vote so well in my district, all four constitutional officers in our state, governor, lieutenant governor, uh, secretary of state, auditor, uh, and attorney general, all Democrats. And both our senators are Democrats. And this is because we rocked the vote in the 5th Congressional District. In fact, if I would have performed at the Democratic average in this last election, Minnesota would have went red. And you can check that on Minnesota Secretary of State's office election results. So I I so I, I think that if what we're trying to do, if our problem is we got low voter turnout, I'm the one who is best suited to solve that problem. Uh, annex question. He's gonna, your people are gonna murder me. Last, really, really the last question. Um, Perez's argument is likely to be a v- somewhat varied from that, talking about a larger umbrella issue of economic uh, economic equality and sort of like. Uh, getting to some of those educated white voters that did not turn out for Clinton. Tell me, uh, tell me what you think of that. Is well, I, I think it's probably it's right. You know, of course, we got to have a big tent. We got to be inclusive. We got to get everybody involved. We got to get. Uh, I mean, we we didn't. We're not performing as well as we should with any sector. When you consider that, probably over a hundred, maybe over, I mean, literally millions of people registered to vote or eligible to vote who have not voted. And some of them are, you know, white women, educated women, and some of them are black, you know, uh, college men, and some of them are Latino, some of them are on on Native Americans. There are a wide range of Americans. and But the real thing is we got to get people excited about being a Democrat and to express their hopes, dreams, and desires electorally for Democrats. That's the goal. So, look, I'd love to work with Tom or Jamie or Ray on these things, but I but I'm the only one who can who is a proven um, success when it comes to voter turnout, and so I think I'm the right one for the job. Well, Keith Ellison, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, thank you very much, and uh, you know, check out We the Podcast sometime. <laughs> I will. Yeah, it's on iTunes. <laughs>